0: All right, settle down. All right, here we go. Calm down. Glad you're here this morning. Uh, and let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 is our text today. I'm going to invite Chris Kemmerer up to read the Word of God for us. Good morning. Uh, Mark
1: chapter five, verse one through 20. And they came over into the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no man could bind him, no knot with chains because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains and the chains had been plucked asunder by him and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him and always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshiped him and cried with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, come out of the man thou want clean spirit. And he asked him, what is thy name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many and he besought him much, that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was there nigh under the mountains of a great herd of swine feeding, and all the devils besought him, saying, send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled, and told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that was done. And they came to Jesus, and see him that was possessed with the devil, and had the legion, sitting and clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil, and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. And when he was come unto the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit, Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had a compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel.
0: Well, as we uh, finish chapter four of Mark, uh, we have seen Jesus teaching in parables, focusing on the disciples. And with the beginning of chapter 5, there is a different theme altogether. If you think about the stories contained in Mark chapter 5, you see three of the most hopeless situations. You have this man possessed by demons. We will read how Mary of Magdala, who became a follower of Jesus, was possessed with seven demons. This man is possessed with a legion of demons. Um, Next week, we're going to read about the healing of a woman who had spent every penny that she had for years on doctors to find relief from a a bleeding issue, from a health issue. And in the context of that healing, there is a 13-year-old girl whose father, Jairus, is desperate there are very few times when I wake up in the middle of the night at just a dead alert sort of fear moment, and it almost always happens when I have a nightmare concerning my kids. If one of my kids were kidnapped, if something were to happen to one of my kids, there's, there's nothing that will arrest me out of a, a dead sleep any quicker than something happening to my children. And Jairus' story is like, this is a desperate Parent whose child is dying, who is going to see Jesus, and on the way, the child dies. These are the most hopeless human situations. And so, we're going to walk into this chapter five. And the bigger point of this context of scripture is that there is no hopeless situation or unredeemable situation that you're facing in your life today that Jesus cannot speak to. That should give us great hope. Uh, That should give us great hope. You may have come to church this morning thinking, uh, there's no hope for me. I'm too far gone. Or you may have a friend who is struggling or maybe someone is dealing with anxiety or an addiction or some sort of an emotional issue or a relational issue. (coughs) Listen, there is no situation that Jesus Christ cannot enter into bring hope and redemption and love and restoration Chapter 5, verse 1, they get to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, this is another country. They have crossed the border. This is no longer Israel, right? Um, and the first clue for that is there's a herd of pigs, right? Uh, you don't eat pigs if you're in Israel. But, but on the other side, this was a region called the Decapolis. The Decapolis was a loosely connected group of ten cities that controlled the eastern trade routes imagine in your mind on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee over here uh, the eastern side there are these trade routes that go from uh, the Red Sea uh, up to Syria and through the east and so the Greco Roman settlers would have capitalized on these trade routes and that's why there are so many pigs um, they're, they're serving up barbecue and bacon right to all these travelers and their roadside sort of stands and there's a another trade route that's coming from Egypt through this Sea of Galilee area and so this is is a very wealthy economic area and there's a lot of uh, travel happening in this place. And so the Decapolis would have been a whole nother country, it would have been a whole nother region, not Jewish, not Israelite, but just across the lake. If you were a Jew, right, if you were maybe a rebellious teenager, uh, you would get in your boat and you would sneak over there and, and eat some barbecue. <laughs> or maybe you would go over there and you would uh, do things on the other side of the lake that you shouldn't do. And then you would kind of sneak back over. Um, but this was a, a different country altogether. They wouldn't have had any context for who Jesus was. They wouldn't have had any teaching about Messiah. They wouldn't have had any understanding of Jesus' political expectations of the Messiah or people's expectations of Jesus as a king. This would have been a completely different... Area. So it's strange that Jesus would go there anyway. Jesus didn't make too many trips outside of the nation of Israel. Remember uh, when he's trying to get away with his disciples later on, he goes to an area called Syrophoenicia. Do you remember that? And the Syrophoenician woman says, There's a demon who's got my daughter. And Jesus says, It's not right for me to take the food for the children and give it to the dogs. Well, he wasn't necessarily insulting her as much as he was saying that the time of my focus now is for Israel. God has sent me to the nation of Israel and once their rejection is complete, then he will open the way to the Gentiles. Um, But Jesus didn't make too many trips outside of Israel unless he was getting away with his disciples and away from crowds. So it's unusual that Jesus would go to the other side. This is uh, unusual, but they come to the other side, chapter 5, verse 1. And when they get there to the country of the Gerasenes, uh, as soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, immediately um, there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Uh, Have you ever had a situation where uh, maybe you get out of your house um, or maybe you walk into your house and there is an instant confrontation? Have you ever had an instant confrontation? Maybe you walk in your house and there are children fighting, right? I know that doesn't happen in your house, um, but, but maybe that's the situation. Uh, I remember one time Julie was driving and there was a road rage, road rage issue and this guy zipped out in front of her and on a highway stopped on the exit ramp in front of her and sort of blocked her path and instantly walked over to her window and began pounding on the window on the side of the highway And she was on the phone with me, and there was this this sort of terroristic moment of fear and confrontation. Uh, When I uh, grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, Norman, Oklahoma, and there was a very active satanic church there. Um, Several of my friends, several of my classmates, when I became a believer... Guys that I used to um, run with and spend time with before I was a Christ follower, uh, we would go and frequent these sort of satanic ritual locations. There was a a burnt out factory with a large Cadillac in the middle of the main floor, uh, surrounded by a pentagram, and there were always sort of ritual activities happening a lot of these guys that I used to run with, when I became a Christ follower, um, in my first year as a believer, I would bring my Bible to school and I would read it at different times. And I'll never forget... Um, <clears throat> three of those guys in one of my classes sat all around me one day and uh, they all pulled out their satanic Bible. It was like a war of the Bibles. I don't know what they were doing, but maybe trying to intimidate me, but this was a very common thing. <clears throat> one of their friends sort of, like I guess what you would call a small group leader of <laughs> their satanic sort of cell group or whatever, he had dropped out of school a long time ago and was not a good guy at all. <clears throat> but later that night, Uh, He found me at a gas station, and as soon as I got out of the car, he walked up and grabbed the door and basically pulled me out of the car and said uh, that so-and-so and and -and so-and-so all said that you wanted to fight me or something like that, and immediately there was this confrontation. It was one of those moments where uh, I didn't know whether I should be scared. I didn't know what I should do. But as a brand new believer, uh, I just called on the name of Jesus. And I, and I just said, Brian, I've, I've given my life to Jesus. And, and, uh, and, and I'm, not, I'm not afraid of, of anything that you or your friends are trying to do to intimidate me. But it was one of these sort of hard to reconcile issues where dark and light, angels and demons. It was kind of one of these sort of spiritual warfare moments and, and this is sort of the scene that comes to mind when I think of the moment the boat hits the shore, immediately out of the tombs, a man comes to confront Jesus with an unclean spirit. Now listen to the situation that this man is in. Um, verses three through six in the ESV says, this man lived among the tombs. What measures must those who cared about this person have taken where the greatest possible scenario for him at this point in his life was to find the heaviest change you could and find a cemetery where you could chain him up next to a pig farm? imagine the resources spent on this man for, we don't know his age, but for many years of his life, um, we learn from the sister passages in Matthew and in Luke that no one could pass through this way. That uh, this man had terrorized the place. I think even in Matthew, it describes two men coming out, and and it, it's unclear what and uh, how to reconcile whether it was two men or one man. Two gospels say it was one man. One gospel says it was two men. Either way, this is a an opponent that owned this area. It was an an area desolated. Um, if you've ever been around a pig farm, especially a farm with two thousand pigs every once in a while living in Southerton, a pig truck will drive by and uh, and I don't want to be near a pig truck when it drives by Um, it's a disgusting smell and it's a um, they can wreak havoc on a landscape Um, and so for this man for him to be in such a hopeless situation Maybe they tried to keep him at home for a period of time. Uh, maybe when that didn't work, they tried to uh, place him in someone else's care or some other sort of help. But, but there was no hope for this guy other than to chain him up and to put him um, in these caves and tombs and for everybody to avoid him altogether. Um, this man was in complete torment. He uh, doesn't wear clothes no one can subdue him. People stay away from him. He's violent. Not only that, externally is he dangerous, but, but he's a danger to himself. Scripture says that he cuts himself with stones. He is, uh, he's got scars and unhealed wounds, and he's bleeding. Can you picture the scene in your mind of this person who runs out to meet Jesus in this situation? This is the worst situation imaginable for him. It's, it's enough for me to make this point here that Satan's goal is to destroy all good things that God has created. It is his goal to destroy the image of God anywhere he can. And there. is is part of his activity. Jesus said in John 10 that the thief comes only to do what? To steal, kill, and destroy. The activity of Satan in a person's life, the activity of uh, the fallen angels, the demonic forces, is single-fold. To destroy the image of God and the activity of God in the people of God that God loves and desires. That is his goal in the world, to destroy all things good and godly that bears the image of God. And so the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus' goal is the opposite of that. I came that they may have what? Life and life more abundantly. Uh, I think Psalm 16, 27 says, you make known to me the path to life. In your presence there is fullness Of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you want to experience pleasures forevermore? Do you want to experience the fullness of joy? Jesus shows you the path to walk on, and it is a path to life. Satan's lies will show you a path to death and destruction because it is his goal only to steal, kill, and destroy. John 8.44, Jesus is in a confrontation with the Pharisees and he says to them, you are of your father, the devil, and it is your will to do your father, the devil's desires. Listen to Jesus's description. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So, uh, Philippians says whatever, right? This whole whatever passage, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is holy. Dwell on these things. But it's Satan's activity in order to destroy your life to sell you lies. This is what's going to make you happy. This is what's going to fulfill you. This is what's going to bring you life. But it is a lie, and it is only meant to steal, kill, and destroy. Ephesians 4, 26-27 describes a righteous kind of anger. Be angry and do not sin. And as a matter of fact, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And his instruction to the Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians 4.27, do not give the devil any opportunity through your anger and your sin. Deal with sin quickly because it is an unreconciled, unconfessed sin that the devil has an opportunity. In Ephesians 6.11, we're told to put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In Revelation 12.9, it says, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He is the deceiver of the whole world. He's thrown down to the earth and all of his angels with him. And he has a limited amount of power, authority, and activity on this earth to persuade and destroy God's image and God's work here. This man, as well as Mary Magdalene, as well as all of these others that Jesus has confrontations with during his three-year ministry, they bear evidence of the destructive, demonic work of the devil to ruin God's good work in the world, his act of redemption. This is the end This is the snapshot of one of Satan's greatest disciples. If there is a picture of godliness or holiness, you think of your heroes of the New Testament, maybe a Paul or a Timothy or the Apostle John. You think of the the poster child of the Gospel. Paul was a murderer, a Pharisee, a religious authority. He... um, fully agreed with the stoning of Stephen, held the coats of those who picked up rocks to, to, to stone Stephen, if, if Paul, arrested by the Gospel on the road to Damascus, and then becomes the hero of the New Testament, if that's sort of one of our heroes, this demoniac is the hero of Satan's activity. Jesus affirms the reality that people can be uh, tormented by a demon. They can be influenced by demons. They can be oppressed by demons. And to a further level, they can be possessed by a demon. There are various levels of influence that the demonic realm has. But for someone like Mary Magdalene, who was possessed by seven demons, to have come out of a life of agony and destruction that she would have come out with is nothing compared to this guy right here. Some commentaries go so far as to describe the great windstorm that came when Jesus made His way toward this demoniac as a power of Satan. I don't believe that. But some commentaries will describe the great windstorm that comes up and tries to keep Jesus from the demoniac's shoreline and the immediate confrontation that happens once he meets there as a aspect of spiritual warfare. I don't believe that, but I'm just letting you know what some commentaries think. This is a supernatural battle that is taking place. And Satan's only goal is to destroy all good things that God created, especially his image bearers. Now, you, Christ follower... Uh, Satan has no authority over you. Jesus Christ dwells within you. The Holy Spirit, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there is redemption. There. He cannot touch you. He cannot hurt you. There is no way um, that he can affect you outside of God's authority in his life. We're going to read in a little while in Luke 22 uh, where Jesus um, has told Simon Peter, Uh, Satan has asked if he could sift you like wheat and I gave him permission. And so there's a limited amount of activity that, uh, that the dark forces of evil can have on a believer only sort of as far as God's leash allows them and then he is able to yank them back. But if you're not in Christ, if you are not a Christ follower, the activity of Satan can be more pronounced and more influential in your life. And if you're experiencing torment or destruction, if your life is spiraling downward, there is an element of satanic activity in your life that is seeking to destroy you. And you may put on a good front in public, or you may, uh, but you, secretly you may be wasting away with addiction, or you may be wasting away with some sort of sexual issue. Maybe some sort of pedophilia or homosexuality or sexual perversion or maybe some sort of greed or some sort of divisiveness or gossip or division. All of these activities thwart the good work of God. And it is absolutely scriptural that, that Satan's activity inside the church and outside the church is to destroy all good things that God is doing So you may be able to uh, fool those around you, but your life will be marked by stealing, killing, and destroying. It will be a destructive life, not a life that builds up. It's very clear. Read Galatians 5. Um, those who sow to the flesh will reap from the flesh destruction. And there's a list of the fruit of your flesh in Galatians five. The latter half of Galatians five, you remember, uh, is the fruit of the spirit. Those who are controlled by the spirit, however, they demonstrate the fruit of the spirit. I put a fruit of the spirit poster outside in the lobby if you want to look at it. But the fruit of the spirit, you know, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self control. Those nine qualities. Are the fruit of those who are in the Spirit. The fruit of those who are not in the Spirit are reflective more of Satan and his activity, and it is always destructive. Look at verses 7 through 10. Crying out with a loud voice, here's the confrontation again. Jesus has not, maybe not even got out of the boat yet, and this guy runs over and confronts him, crying out with a loud voice. He said, "What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God?" Now, just listen to his confrontation. And I don't know here; it's unclear. It's unhealthy to speculate where Scripture doesn't clearly say. I don't know whose will is being exerted here. Is it the man? Or is it this horde of demons? I don't know. The the demons are going to speak. They're going to use his mouth. The demons have control over this guy's body. But this person is still a person with a level of autonomy and independence. He is trying to cut himself, trying to destroy himself. Some of that is... There is a line somewhere between who this man is and who these demonic forces are. And I don't know where that line is. But this man runs over, cries out with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. Right? This may be one of the lies that Satan has fed this man is that uh, anyone godly, anyone good, anyone holy, God Himself wants nothing to do with you but to destroy you. You're too far gone. You're too bad. There's no hope for you. And so this man could have felt like Jesus was coming to destroy him. It's ironic that Jesus is not here to destroy him, but is here to bring him life. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a legion is a Roman unit of the army that is up to 6,000 people. I have a hard time, I mean, just me. I have a hard time thinking this guy's got 6,000 demons crammed in here. I don't know anything about the demonic volume, <laughs> you know, Rate there's no formula for like the ratio of how, you know, I don't know if this was a bigger guy so he could like, I don't know any of those things so I'm, I'm going to sound dumb <clears throat> if I keep talking, but... But this guy had a lot, and we know that it was enough demonic influence that 2,000 pigs are all going to commit like mass suicide in a minute. So it it may be up to 1,000. I don't know. I just have no idea, and it's probably unhealthy to speculate. But this dude has a lot of darkness inside of him. And he begged him earnestly, verse 10, not to send them out of that country or some sort of a regional understanding of these satanic powers. Um, there's a lot of begging happening here as well. I want you to see this. The, 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 I adjure you, uh, verse 7, by God, not to torment me, is a, a form of begging. Um, Verse ten, and he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Verse twelve, I have all these underlined, and they begged him, saying, "Send us to the bi- to send us to the pigs." Verse seventeen, they begin to beg Jesus to depart from the region um, uh, again. In verse seventeen or verse eighteen, um, the man who was possessed with demons begged that he might go with him. There's a lot of begging in this passage, more than twenty verses you'll normally find in begging, and so. I don't don't understand uh, exactly what's happening other than to say that Jesus is immediately recognized as authoritative. He is instantly recognized as authoritative. Look at verses 15 through 17. I'm sorry, in verse 10 and 12, they beg Him, go into the pigs. Verse 13, He gives them permission. More authority here. Jesus gives them permission. Uh, They go into the pigs. But the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Verse 14, this flipped out the herdsmen, right? I mean, they saw this. They saw the storm. They saw the waves. They may have even seen the boat. They see the demoniac. This dude's been crying out and breaking chains. For years, So they know to keep their distance. But this is a menace to the whole lake community. And so these guys see this entire event. And so realistically, you understand that this encounter must have taken a period of time, maybe an hour or more, because the herdsmen have enough time to flee. And the disciples have enough time to scrape up some clean clothes and clean this guy up. And so all of this is taking place over a period of time. The herdsmen go, they tell it in the city and in the country, and people are coming to see what it is that's happening. All of their money, all the investors, all of those who provide feed, everything that's sort of supporting this industry, everyone who has a vested interest is now coming to find out what just happened to our bank account. What just happened to our main source of income? Why is our entire stock of food and production, why is the factory shut down? Right? They have no context for Jesus. They have no messianic expectation. This is just people from another country who all they know is a psychopath in the cemetery is in his right mind and all of our money is gone. And they see the demon-possessed man the one who had had the legion, verse 15, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they're afraid. So a lot of fear in these few chapters. The disciples are afraid about the windstorm, right? They're terrified. Jesus says, peace be still, the wind stops. That's terrifying. The waves stop and all of a sudden the sea is glassy and calm. And it says the disciples are terrified. They're even more scared. The people see Jesus and they're terrified. Everybody's terrified. There's a lot of terrified things happening in this sort of section. And I just want to make this little point here. This should prompt us to approach the throne of grace with a little bit of mixture of fear and awe. I always give a little pause when people describe Jesus as sort of like their homeboy, you know? Yeah, Jesus and I we just kind of talk about everything, and everywhere I go, he's right there with me, and I can go into this place, and he's cool with it, and I know he's going to forgive me, and so Jesus is like my pal that's in the backseat of the car, and wherever I go, there he is, and if I need some money, he's going to sort of bless me with it, and if I need a sale, he's going to sort of make a sale happen, and if, if I need to sort of make everything go right, that Jesus is just cool with everything I do, and they describe Jesus in such flippant, casual, um, non-honoring, no sort of awe, no sort of fear. Listen, when you read through Scripture about the way in which people approach the holiness of God, There is a sense of reverence, awe, and outright fear. Think of Moses at the burning bush. Think of Isaiah 6. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among an unclean people. The normal position when someone is confronted with deity is face down in fear. Think of the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John have been with Jesus for a long period of time. They're in awe of who Jesus is. But when they get up on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus is transformed into His glory, Jesus is not their homeboy. Jesus is not cool Jesus who is just sort of lucky rabbits, but Jesus. Jesus is an all-consuming fire is the way Hebrews describes Him. Think of John, the disciple whom Jesus loves who is resting on Jesus' body at the Last Supper. When John... Uh, 60 years later is on the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter one. John hears a voice. He turns around and he sees this Jesus, whom he had had an intimate, close relationship with, close enough that Jesus on the cross said, "Here's my mom. Take care of my mom." John doesn't treat Jesus in a familiar way on the island. He falls down as a dead man when he sees this Jesus. Ezekiel. Um, All of these passages in Scripture, the proper response to who Jesus is in His holiness is fear and awe. Proverbs says, without the fear of God, there there is no life. There is no faith unless there is a fear. I'm not asking you to be afraid of God, but I'm saying mix in a little biblical understanding as you approach the throne of grace. As you approach your relationship with God, let's finish the story here, and then I want to make a couple of application points. As Jesus is getting into the boat, they beg Jesus to leave them get away, we don't understand all this, get away. As Jesus is getting into the boat, which is interesting that Jesus has authority over all these things, and they ask him to leave, he leaves. As Jesus is getting into the boat, the man who has been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. Verse 19, Jesus says, no. No, you can't go with me. Go home to all your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You hear that? Go to your friends. This guy had friends. This guy wasn't an isolated Pariah. I mean, he was. He was isolated in the cemetery with chains and stuff. But people cared about this guy. He had people recognized him. They knew him. He had a hometown. He had people who taught him in Sabbath school or like first grade or whatever. People knew who this guy was. They watched him grow. And now they're going to see him later in his right mind, clothed and saying, you know how I was. Look at what Jesus has done for me. And the story doesn't terminate here. You know Damascus is in the 10-city region. And a decade or two from now, a guy named Saul is going to be riding a horse to that area. And there are already a faithful group of believers. A guy named Ananias is going to go and lay his hands on Saul and help him regain his sight. Why are there faithful groups of believers already in the 10-city region because the worst guy in their region had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ and couldn't keep quiet about it and went city to city telling everybody what Jesus had done for him in preparation for the Gospel. Now, in a few weeks, uh, Pat Cummings is going to come and preach on the sending out of the disciples. And they're going to go out to all the places where Jesus is going to go. All right? Jesus often sends people in advance of where he's about to move. Maybe God's going to move somewhere and he's preparing you and he's preparing a place and you're to go there in a John the Baptist kind of way to prepare the way. This guy is preparing the way for the move of the new church of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, you can't be my disciple now, but you're going to be my disciple in years to come. The future ministry in the Decapolis is seated by this man's testimony. This man would have been filled with the Holy Spirit after Pentecost. And then he would have had the presence of Jesus with him forever. The helper, the counselor. Isn't that amazing? Seems kind of rude, right? Jesus, no, you can't come with me. No, it's not it at all. Jesus knows the end. He knows hey, it's going to be hard in this period, but you go start telling people all that God has done for you and all the mercy that I have. Let me just make a couple of points in application. Number one, there are a hundred things I could say about this passage, but for us, for the body of believers that God has called me to shepherd, there's a couple of things I want to say to you. Number one, Jesus Is preeminent and he is Lord over all things. Jesus is preeminent and he is Lord over all things. In Colossians chapter 1, 13 through 20, I'm going to read it for you. You can write it down and read it later. We see this preeminence and lordship clearly. Colossians 1, 13 through 20, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Listen, Jesus has the authority to make a transfer request. This person is tormented under Satan's kingdom. I want that person. I'm going to transfer him. He has transferred us from the domain of darkness into His kingdom. The kingdom of his beloved son, the growing kingdom that we talked about a few weeks ago in the parables, the mustard seed kingdom that is growing in whom, in this kingdom, in the son of Jesus Christ, verse 14 of Colossians one, we have redemption. What is redemption? Purchased from darkness and transformed someone who you think about an antique piece of furniture that's busted. You buy it, you restore it. It's valuable now. This is the idea of redemption. God has purchased you from the domain of darkness, transferred you, cleansed you, and redeemed you through uh, His beloved Son. And part of that is the forgiveness of your sins. Now listen to what this says about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers and authorities. Listen, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is preeminent. Verse 17, He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent If you would like to dwell and meditate on the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ there is no better there are better there are good passages this is a good passage Colossians 1:13 through 20 verse 19 for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross Listen, Jesus is first and preeminent in all things. And so therefore, he is worthy to be preeminent and Lord of your own life. You struggle with personal lordship? Yes, I do. Are there times when my flesh crawls on the throne of my heart and says, withhold forgiveness? Yes. Jesus says, love your enemies, forgive those who mistreat you. And there are times when when I drag myself up and say, I'm the king of my life, I'm going to withhold forgiveness. You uh, uh, wronged me, and I'm going to hold that against you. Um, You did something wrong, and so I'm going to gossip about you. Um, You, um, in some way, maybe I'm jealous of you, or I'm envious of you, or uh, I've got something against you, I'm going to hold it against you, and I'm going to mistreat you. These are all evidences of our flesh. Gossip and division. Slander. uh, Read that Galatians 5. Drunkenness. uh, All sorts of sexual immoralities. All of those things are evidences of our flesh when us as Christ followers will take ourselves and put ourselves on the throne. Taking the place of preeminence where Jesus Himself has the rightful place. In His grace and mercy... In Christ, you have forgiveness. You can say, Lord, I, I need you to forgive me. I took the Lordship place. I, I took the reins of my own life. I kicked you out of the driver's seat and I took control and I need you to be in control again. And he promises to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Fundamentally, this is what it means to become a Christ follower. To stop being the king of your own life or the queen of your own life. He says, forgive. You, you say, yes, sir, I forgive. He says, love your enemies? Yes, sir, I, I will love you. He says, um, go and give and share and love and work and serve. It's not our role to say, no, I won't do that. He is preeminent in the Lord over all things. And our proper response is worship and obedience. That's the first point we can get from this passage. The second thing, the second application is there are no things. Hopeless situations that God cannot redeem. There's not a situation that God cannot redeem. God can redeem the seemingly most hopeless situations. Think about some of the most hopeless situations in the Bible that God redeems and makes beautiful. Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, eventually finds himself in prison. God redeems that situation, puts him in charge of all of Egypt, and saves his entire family, even the ones who wronged him, find salvation through that situation. Moses' mother. Pharaoh said all the baby boys must be thrown into the Nile. That's a hopeless situation, people. Moses' mother, not wanting, seeing that the baby boy was beautiful, Hebrews tells us. In faith, weaves a basket, makes it uh, you know, able to float, places the baby boy in there, and places it in the Nile. That's a hopeless situation. You have a hard time putting your kid in the nursery, <laughs> right? Put your baby in a handmade basket on a Nile. God redeems him, and he becomes the greatest deliverer of Old Testament Israel. Think of this unredeemable situation David's father, Jesse. Samuel comes to him and says, bring me all of your sons. One of them is going to be anointed as king. He lines them all up. Samuel goes from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And what does he say? It's not any of these. Don't you have any more sons? I asked you for all your sons. Where are all your sons? Well, there's one more. Can you imagine the father wound that David must have carried? He's not even thought of as a son. In in that Old Testament sort of society, your sons were everything to you. Your sons were your legacy. This, This isn't even considered, this is less than a slave. David finally is anointed king, but not because of his dad. And he becomes a man after God's own heart, uh, the greatest king in Israel, and the future Messiah comes through his lineage. Think about Daniel in a lion's den. That's an unredeemable situation. That's a hopeless situation. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think about this guy possessed with so many demons that he cries out in a loud voice day and night, continually slashes his body and is chained up in a cemetery next to a pig farm. That's a bad situation. That's a bad situation. Jesus loves the lost and God receives glory by redeeming the most unredeemable situations imaginable for his own glory. It was about two years ago, this time of year, uh, when I got a phone call from a friend who told me about her neighbor, she said, my neighbor is going to call you. He's having an issue um, with voices and oppression. And a few weeks later, uh, Dave Morgan called me. Dave right here sitting on the front row. Uh, Dave has a history of addiction. And in the context of his addiction, found himself in Kensington a few years ago found himself in a bad situation and prayed to demonic spirits to deliver him out of that situation, and acquired what he described as attachments, and for years struggled with these attachments, who spoke voices and tormented him, constantly. And Dave tried everything. Dave tried psychics and healers and all kinds of stuff to find deliverance. And at the end of his rope, his neighbor said, why don't you call Gibson? Came into my office and I shared the gospel as I normally do. Drew it on a board, described Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Described the process of repentance and faith. And at the end of it, Dave and Liz as a couple in our office uh, right there in Soderton, above Moyer Specialty Foods, asked Jesus Christ to come into their life. Three months later, in one of my favorite baptism pictures ever, the light hits Dave and just away, his wife, and we dunk them and just seeing the redemption in their life. And then we move here a year later, and Dave says, I, I, don't, I don't know, but this looks from, I used to use drugs in this parking lot. You talk about a hopeless, unredeemable situation. Here's a guy who worships the Lord Jesus this morning on the front row. Nobody had hope for that guy. Nobody had hope. Not even his wife had hope that that situation was redeemable. And this is a trophy of God's grace in our midst. All glory to God, not to Him. He doesn't want me to pat Him on the back. But there are no hopeless, unredeemable situations. And that guy is proof that Jesus loves sinners. Luke 19.10, Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. Mark 2.17, He says, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the, it's the sick. The dude who cuts himself in a cemetery and is possessed by a legion of demons. That's the guy I came to save and make a trophy of my grace and my glory. That's the one who for eternity will sing the song of the redeemed in the presence of angels and the Holy Spirit of God. That's, that's Dave. Who for... For the rest of his life, God willing, will sing the song of the redeemed. This is Luke 15. The shepherd leaves 99 sheep to go find the one that's lost. The woman will sweep the house to find the lost coin and the father will wait on the edge of the pasture for the the lost, prodigal, wayward child to come home. That's the one that God loves. God loves the sinner. And you may find yourself in a seemingly hopeless situation. There are no hopeless situations. There are no unredeemable lives. As long as there is breath, God can redeem that person, even if there's not breath, right? Lazarus, come out, four days dead in the tomb. For us, as Christ followers, this, this should cause ridiculous worship. Amen? I mean, if you can't sing to Jesus about that, this should cause ridiculous worship, number one. Number two, we should rejoice in the grace and mercy of God that none of us are too far gone. There's not a sin that you've committed that he can't and won't forgive if you humbly ask him. There's not a situation that you're in that he can't transform and make you a trophy of his grace and an example of the glory and the mercy of God. He told the demoniac, go and tell everybody about the mercy of God. Lord Jesus, I could go on forever. But sermons have to come to an end. But I rejoice, Lord Jesus, in your mercy. I rejoice that you chase those who are far from you and that it is your desire to redeem those that we write off those that we view as unredeemable, lost people living in darkness, you send light there. You send people who know the Gospel to declare the glory and salvation of God. And I praise You. I praise You for Dave and Liz. I thank You that we can point to people in our midst. There are a dozen people that I could look at in this room who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of our beloved Son through the forgiveness of sins and the blood that you shed on the cross. And I praise you that there is not a person in this room that is beyond hope. And I pray that as a redeemed people, we would not get so uptight about the songs that we sing or the furniture that we sit on or the petty squabbles that define some churches, but that we would be passionate for the gospel of Jesus Christ and its power to transform people. Let your praise be ever on our lips and let the gospel be not far behind. May we praise you when you send us into dark places and difficult times that we may be redeemed and that we may proclaim a redeemer. We praise you for your work and activity among the lost. Let us join you in that. Help us to be kingdom focused to be kingdom-minded, and we worship you for your great mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.